up. This is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just, uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight. So, uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay? And, um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren, an AINC original podcast. Is there you? We're not holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Great. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Blindsight, produced by Audio Information Network of Colorado. I'm your host, Bill Lundgren. I'm delighted to have you here today. And I'm especially delighted today to present our guest. Uh, You know, in all the programs we've had so far, we've had people who talk about mental health and how to keep your your uh keep yourself mentally healthy and uh what to do when there is a mental health issue but we have not talked with anyone yet who has been in the inside and gone through and recovered or recovering whichever you prefer from mental health issues and that is so vital and our guest today, Heather Hutchison, is going to talk about her experience. And she's written a book. She is a writer. She's a musician. She's a performer. Uh, she's just a, a woman of, of many, many talents. Heather, I'm so delighted to have you here today. Our pleasure like to uh, just let let our listeners know we will be talking about mental health issues. We will be talking about issues of thoughts of suicide and so forth. Just, just be aware uh, these are all very important subjects. The problem being that we've stigmatized them, and that's, I hope, that you know, people like Heather can help us break that. So if we can get right off uh, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, for sure. So I am a singer-songwriter, author, uh, mental health and disability advocate, and digital content creator, which basically means that I make content on social media, TikTok and Instagram mainly, to advocate for and share my story and, you know, hopefully bring awareness, as you said, to destigmatizing these things because... I don't think not talking about them is working. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, the, the thing is, I'd like to have it come to a point myself uh, to where we say, okay, I've had the issues of X and I'm doing something about it. And it only that only happens when people like you talk about it as yeah. well as people like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when you, in terms of your journey with mental health issues, uh, how far back does that go? And also, uh, I think it's important to tell people that you're part of the blindness community. Yeah, so it goes way, way back. I would say the first things I really noticed were probably, I was probably about seven and I started having panic attacks at the time. I had no idea what they were because I was seven and it just seemed to be like, oh my God, I'm dying. Like what, 
what is going on here. Um, I hope things are changing for kids now, but my parents took me to the pediatrician because I was missing a lot of school. I would get sent home from school because I was sick all the time. And the pediatrician was basically like, well, she's an anxious kid. She'll grow out of it, which um, <laughs> clearly that didn't happen. And I think is really unfortunate because I think with so many things, so many different types of illnesses, if you catch it early, it's so much easier to treat. Right. So as I got older, I would say early teens, the anxiety I would say sort of led to the depression with, with other factors, but I think anxiety was a big factor because who wants to feel like that all the time? So you start looking for a way out. And one of the problems is that, uh, you know, people joke about oh, teenagers are always depressed or they're always anxious. They kind of see a, a normal part of adolescence and don't pay attention when it's, uh, it's extreme or even at the time, maybe a good time to, goes uh check it out with somebody yeah. who knows what they're talking about mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and you were blind at the same time yeah i was born blind did people kind of you know say well she's blind uh, no wonder she's anxious yes yeah and i think that's been a huge barrier for me so i've been in and out of therapy since i was a kid but i think that's been a huge bar barrier for me Every time I feel like I need to seek treatment that, you know, because I've had good mental health professionals, I've had not so great ones, you know, sometimes they don't always know how to deal with disability. So I, one of my biggest fears was going to a therapist who would just kind of write me off like, oh, you're blind. Of course, you're depressed. Of course, you're anxious. And end of discussion when there's so many more factors. Mm -hmm. I just attended a professional meeting recently, a couple-day meeting, and I talked with treatment people and asked, was trying to find some treatment people who work with blind people, and I couldn't find any. And, of course, when I go to these meetings, I'm the only blind person there. Yeah. And I think, you mean there aren't any therapists who are blind? And, you know, now I know there are some others, but uh, it... it <sighs> They focus on uh, blindness rather than what's going on in addition. And yeah, absolutely. And that's what you're, you're, you experience, unfortunately. And yeah. we've got to look at the total person. Yeah, exactly. It's, you can't just treat one aspect. You have to treat the person as a whole, the person that's in front of you. And there's a lot of enabling that goes on, too, in terms of uh, people saying the same thing as you, as you were and just saying, well, you know, she's anxious because she's blind or even especially around drinking, for example. Oh, well, I would drink, you know, to excess if I were blind, that kind of thinking that gets in the way of our getting help and people paying attention to, to our needs. Mm -hmm. I think even with suicide, like how often do we hear, oh, if I was blind, I'd kill myself. So that kind of normalizes it, too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, they just it, it's real difficult for people who are not in our shoes to understand and that we are a whole person that we're, you know. So can you tell talk a little bit about your journey? Yeah, like I shared, it started early. 
Um, so I would have major depressive episodes throughout my teens and my early adulthood, and they all kind of resolved eventually either with treatment, um, treatment and medication, sometimes on their own. And then in November of 2018, I entered into a major depressive episode that didn't end like the other ones. I, as the months went on, I got dinner, I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping, my hair was falling out, and I kind of realized that I was coming to the end. And so in June of 2019, I went to my doctor and he helped me get into more of a regular outpatient program. Um, they played around with my medication and things were getting better. Things were on the upswing and then COVID-19 hit. And I think it was just such a confusing time for everybody. So my doctors and therapists stopped seeing people in person. They didn't see, you know, the physical signs of my decline and they were harder to reach because like nobody knew what was going on. And for me, one of my big tactics that I would use to get through these episodes was what I called survival goals. So I can't kill myself until I take this one last trip or I can't kill myself until my friend comes to visit. And I would make like specific dates for these things. And then I would count down until these things happened. And as soon as they happened, I had to make another one immediately after so that I could convince myself to keep on living. And when COVID hit, all of those things were put on hold. The world didn't know what was going on. I didn't know when or if those things were going to come back. Right. And to me, I was like, well, what's the point of living without attainable goals? Right. So it's, it sounds like you have a, a certain survival instinct but it was very limited. It was feeling very limited for you. And then when all these uh, uh, goals that you set weren't available, then then what? They didn't work anymore. Yeah, exactly. So then it was like, well, there's no point to this. And I wasn't having regular meetings with my therapist. My medication wasn't being managed properly with which is nobody's fault it just it was what it was because of the situation mm -hmm. but it left me trying to deal with this stuff really alone i mean i had the support of my family and friends i think a lot of people think that if somebody is suicidal that means that they have nobody right. i had people but they were at like they didn't know what to do if they even realized at all, because you can feel like you're sending out these, all these signs, all these signals and nobody notices. So it finally got to the point where I made concrete plans. I, I'm, I'm a very big planner. So I had everything sort of planned down to the T of how I was not going to be here anymore. And I was talking to, I was texting with my aunt, who's an ER physician. She's been a physician for pretty much as long as I've been alive. And I don't know what it was about what I was saying to her that sort of tipped her off. She, in retrospect, says she has no idea like that it was that bad. But she started um, talking to me. She said, can I call you? And she said, 
I don't care how you get there. You know, you can, the police, you can go on your own, but if you were one of my patients, you would need to go. So I think this, you need to go to the hospital. And so I kind of made this unspoken promise to myself and to my loved ones that I would go um, after I had arranged everything. So my plan was just to go to the hospital. I wasn't seeking treatment. I didn't want to get better at that point. I mean, in retrospect, there must have been a part of me that was still fighting, but I just told myself that I was going to seek absolution so that when I was gone, my family and friends would be able to say, well, she tried. And so I went to the hospital and I fully expected them to be like, oh, you're fine. You can go home. And then everything was ready. I just needed to set it in motion. And uh, obviously, <laughs> I'm talking to you now, so that wasn't how it played out. Yeah, they they paid attention. So your aunt paid attention mm-hmm. and they paid attention. Yeah, which was like really surprising to me because, again, I think one of these myths is that if somebody's suicidal, they're going to be distraught. So I went to, you know, there was no... If you just looked at me, I, you know, looked very malnourished by that point. But otherwise, like, I was very calm. Everything was very matter of fact. Mm. There were no tears. It was just like, this is how it is. And so you were able to give an image of everything was okay, because at this point, you'd really given up. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the ER doctor... I don't know really what she saw. There's, you know, I go over this often still. Um, like why, why she saw what she saw. Why did she pick me? But she said, um, after talking to me, you know, you're going to stay here for tonight. And that turned into, uh, not just that night and, so I spent a couple of days in the psychiatric ER, and then I was moved to a bit of a bit of a longer term um, inpatient psychiatric mm-hmm. unit. Mm-hmm. And we're all lucky for that. Yeah, I'm. I'm. It still amazes me years later that it played out how it did because it wasn't at all what I expected to happen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't what you planned. That's for sure. No, not at all. And it was kind of ironic because I felt like I had planned everything perfectly. But what I hadn't counted on was somebody actually realizing that there was something yeah. wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we talk about putting someone in a, a psych program, of course, we've got the, all kinds of images that, in the movie, The Snake Pit. <laughs> yes. Or uh, One Flew <laughs> yeah. Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, you know, these kinds of images of us. Psych unit, how was it for you? What was, uh, what did you find being in a uh, psych unit? Yeah, so one of the big reasons that I actually wrote my book and I wanted to share my story was to sort of dispel those myths of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, girl interrupted, all those kind of movies. Because even talking to my family and friends, I realized how prevalent that kind of imagery still is around inpatient inpatient psychiatric care. So for me, it was, it was, I'm not going to lie. It was one of the hardest things I've ever been through, but it was also overwhelmingly positive. So, you know, I think people have this image that they just 
put you on all these drugs and leave you to sit there. Um, it was a much more holistic program. So there were, you know, med adjustments and things like that, but there was also a lot of therapy. So we had psych nurses that would, um, sort of continue on with the therapy that the doctors were working on. So the doctors you would kind of see once or twice a day. And then the psych nurses, you would have these little almost impromptu therapy sessions with them throughout the day. Like it could be like 10, 15 smaller sessions just kind of broken up throughout the day. And then we had group therapy, which um, didn't work very well for me, actually. I don't really know why. I mean, I I understand why they do group therapy in the hospital, but I feel like there's so many people with such diverse needs right. that it can actually be really dangerous, which it was in my case. Um, but that was like the one real negative. Um, yeah. Other than that, we had group therapy, we had uh, meditation classes, we had yoga, all that kind of stuff. Did you uh, find that people who worked in this facility were comfortable working with someone who does not have sight? Yes, and that actually really surprised me because once they told me that I wasn't going to be leaving, I had no idea what was going to happen. Like, are they going to take my cane away because they took everything else away? Are they going to take my cane away? And then I'm you know, lost in this place that I've never been right. before mm -hmm. with these people that I don't know. So there was like, that was a big source of, I don't want to say anxiety because I think I was pretty numb at that oh, point. Okay. I didn't really mm -hmm. care what happened, but I was definitely, it was definitely like crossed my mind. What's going to happen now? And, and the straight jacket everyone... is going to come out and that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, I didn't know. I didn't imagine that, thankfully, but just like I, I had no idea right. what it was going to be like. And honestly, my aunt was like the first person that was real about me, about what it was actually going to be like with me. I think even my therapists over the years, like they did try and sugarcoat it a little bit because they wanted me to feel comfortable, I guess, to go there. But in a weird way, I think it was my aunt's complete honesty with me about what it was going to be like that actually gave me the courage to go in the first place. I hope everybody heard you that because that is the, the big thing. It's the image versus the reality and you and somebody being honest with you about what uh she saw going on and what you might be afraid of must have been very comforting for you yeah it was because she didn't tell me it was gonna be amazing and perfect and easy she said you know you might experience some things that you will not forget like in terms of other patients mm -hmm. there might be people in restraints people yelling, you know, all these things. And she was the first person that really was straight with me about what it could be like. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. So you were in there and doing a lot of therapy and thinking and whatever. What do you think really helped you with your recovery as part of that program? So for me, I would say like the first little while that I was there, I was still just doing the act, like completely dissociated, um, numb, 
just going through the motions so that they would let me out and I could continue on with my plans. And one night I was lying awake in bed. This is when they had already moved me to the other psych unit. And there was a medevac that arrived bringing a critical patient from a smaller hospital for to this bigger center for treatment. And it was in that moment that I, as soon as they arrived, they called a code blue. And it was then that I started thinking, like, my God, that, that patient's poor family, they must be having one of the worst, scariest nights that they will ever know. And I started thinking, well, how can I have so much empathy for this person's loved ones? Well, knowing the decision I want to make will devastate my own. And then I started thinking about the patient themselves and thinking this is such a wild juxtaposition because they're in here fighting to live and I'm in here fighting to die. And one of us has a choice. Wow. Is that the first time you really saw that you had a choice? I think so. Yeah, it before that, it just felt like there was no other option. I think often people say, oh, it, it's such a selfish decision, things like that. It's when somebody is going through it, it doesn't even feel like a decision that they get to make. It's just something that they believe wholeheartedly mm-hmm. has to happen. So, yeah, I think that was the first time when I realized I do have a choice to stay here and try to fight. Wow. And part of part of what I hear you you the word you use empathy for the family and thinking about everyone else and forgetting to have empathy for you. Or maybe you thought yeah. doing yourself in was, was empathetic. But I mean the re- reality is, you know, you had a life ahead and you were you you made the choice to say, Okay, I'm I'm gonna go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Before that, I think I, I felt like I was being like, I truly felt like I was being altruistic because I believed wholeheartedly that everybody would be better off without me. And if they weren't going to leave me, then I would have to do the leaving for them. So then what happened? So that's when things actually got hard. I think a lot of people think that that's when things get easier. Mm-hmm. No, things got a lot harder before they got better because we're trying to be honest numbness, too. <laughs> like you am, we want to be honest. It's not easy. No, no, it's not. And when you decide to fight instead of, you know, deciding to give in, there's a lot of stuff that you need to confront. And I found it completely overwhelming. They actually um, sedated me the following day because they were like, that's when I got distraught. I wasn't distraught when the day that I was planning to die, I was distraught after Mm -hmm. when I decided I was going to live, but I needed to work through so much of this stuff. So they ended up sedating me that day because they were like, you're too distraught. We can't do anything with you and honestly I think that was the most compassionate thing they could do because you know I was hesitant but then I was like you know what if somebody is in the hospital suffering acute physical pain they're going to give them something to take that away so 
why don't I, you know, accept that this is what's going to happen and we'll try again tomorrow. And that was the best thing that could have happened because when I did come to, it was, I I think I was in a much better frame of mind um, to actually be an active part of my treatment plan and work with them to work with me. Yeah, it's a struggle to give in and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do something else that you would not yeah. planned. This is totally unplanned. Yeah, exactly. And I'm a planner, so it just it threw everything off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to part one of our story with Heather Hutchison. Join us again next week as we hear about the real work of recovery while being in your own environment. If you or a loved one is dealing with suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 for help. You are not alone. Thank you for listening.